Good evening. Welcome to the second lecture of the second public lecture of the first week of the 1984 Columbia University School of Library Service Rare Books School. The third lecture this week, to which you are all cordially invited, will be tomorrow night and will feature John Cole, the executive director of the Center for the Book at the Library of Congress, speaking on the history of the Library of Congress in the 19th century, a subject on which he is a very considerable and well-published expert. It is the, I suppose I should say, the tradition that those who attend the reception following our lectures earn their way, something which I must admit that my own students have felt free to ignore for years, however, since they can usually smell food from several blocks away in the building. However, we hope to see you at both lectures and reception uh, tomorrow, and as you know, there's a endless succession of these over the next five weeks, a program describing which will be found in room 523, where the reception for this lecture will be. Having nothing formally to do with the Columbia University School of Library Service is an occasional publication called the Bibliography Newsletter. And you must assume that by occasional publications, I have just made a very ironic remark Many of you here are subscribers and will appreciate this. The first issue of 1984, however, has just appeared, covering the months of January through July, a new record. There are copies of this in the SLS lounge, uh, both for those who are not subscribers to the Bibliography Newsletter, if you'd like one, and those of you who are and who have long since given up hope. You will, of course, eventually receive one at home as well. One feature of the newsletter that may be of particular interest is a very long opening review of Alice Schreier's new book, Rare Books 1983-84, which is a Bowker annual-like publication expected to come out every two years with a collection of interesting front-of-the-book articles on the state of the rare book trade in the United States currently, written by many names that you will recognize, written by many people in the room at the moment followed by a variety of lists, guides, addresses, and other useful matter. The editor of that book, Alice Schreier, uh, will be here tomorrow night to listen to her boss, John Cole, speak, as will about half the contributors. Our speaker this evening is Professor Samuel Pickering from the University of Connecticut at Storrs, whose first task is to smile politely while he receives the usual, which is a Rare Book School 1984 t-shirt. <laughs> this will uh, go quite well with my running shirts. I have several drawers of running shirts for races. I'm one of these runners. Um, this would be great. A little tight on me, however. Yeah, I love a large, actually. I love a large. There's an old story, I'm sure, which most of you are familiar with, but which I'm gonna, I like so much that I'm going to trot it by you once again by way of introduction. An old fellow sitting on his porch rocking and gazing out over his yard. When a neighbor comes by, the neighbor sees him, stops, and asks him, What are you doing? Thinking, the fellow on the porch replies, what about, the neighbor says, 
Don't know. The man answers, just started. Well, I'm a bit like that fellow on the porch. Compared to some people in this room, I've just started thinking about children's books. And if I say anything, any, anything wondrously silly, be tolerant, go home, and pray that someday I'll learn better or really start thinking. My subject is Peter Pippin and John Locke in education and early children's books. And I'm going to assume that although you might be on speaking about terms with little goody two-shoes and Giles Gingerbread, that you don't know much about Peter. And I'm going to sketch his life briefly. Uh, Peter's father, old Gaffer Pippin, was very, very poor. And when Peter was six years old, he went to work scaring the crows out of Farmer Giles's fields. Peter, however, was not simply a laboring hind. He mixed hard work and learning. Whenever the crows were dieting, he read little books. One day, Kitty Kindness gave him a penny, and he and his father now had sixpence, so Peter could buy Robinson Crusoe, a book he had always wanted to own. He gave this sixpence to Farmer Giles and asked the farmer to buy the book for him when he went to town. Now, a great many silly boys, the author wrote, would have spent that penny in apples, gingerbread, or some such trash. And when they had eaten it, what better would they have been of it? Why, nothing at all. But Peter did not lay out his money in such an idle manner. Whenever he got a penny, he bought food for his mind instead of belly, and you will find he afterwards reaped the benefit of it. Well... Not only was Peter a good student and worker, he was good to his parents, obliging to everyone, and said his prayers morning and evening. Consequently, after Lady Bountiful investigated him thoroughly, she sent him to Mr. Teacham's school. At school, Peter distinguished himself for sweetness of temper, and his classmates thought, thought him one of the best boys in the country. They esteemed him so highly that they bought him a fine cap, ornamented it with a... <laughs> <laughs> a white feather, and, had it, and on it had engraved, King of the Good Boys. Well, now Peter Pippin as a book is filled with instructive tales, and most of which taught that the child was the father of the man, or that childhood behavior shaped the adult. One of the typical tales preached kindness to animals. In children's books in the 18th century, and even today, of course, the boy or girl who's, who's Cruel to animals grows up to be a cruel adult. Uh, if you've read children's biographies of George Washington, for example, you'll always discover that George Washington is remarkably kind to the feathered tribe. Uh, you'll discover, if you read about Benedict Arnold, for example, that the eggs of his terrible behavior were laid in childhood when he was cruel to animals. A mid-19th century biographer wrote that he enjoyed tearing fledglings limb from limb. <laughs> well, in Peter Pippin... Let me give you an example of the kind of moral story. One day during research, uh, recess, Mr. Teacham's pupils gathered in the churchyard. Uh, some read instructive books, others played games. Uh, interrupted while shooting marbles with a group of bad boys, including Ned Neverpray, George Graceless took the Lord's name in vain. When Peter rebuked him, George scoffed. At two o'clock, the school bell rang. Peter, along with the rest of the good boys, Billy Meanwell, Sammy Sober, Bobby Bright, and Tommy Telltruth hurried back to class. But the other boys, as they had paid little attention to Peter's warning against cursing, went on playing games. Eventually they grew bored with their game, but it was too late to go back to school, and they decided to go bird nesting. The first nest that they discovered was that of a robin. And 
Harry Harmless, who happened to be along not because he was evil, but just because he was weak, urged them not to destroy the nest. Harry's plea, however, incensed Tom Tiger. And Tom tore down the nest and the birds despite the mother's piteous cries. Well, the boys went on tearing down nests until George Graceless eventually climbed out on a tree limb to tear down a dove's nest. Doves are Bible birds, as you're well aware. Uh, the limb broke, he fell into the river and drowned. And as he went under, he said, Oh, wish I had, if I had listened to Peter Pippin. Well, <laughs> the other boys, as you might imagine, felt somewhat disturbed and guilty after his death. But like hardened sinners, they were unable to return to Mr. Teacham, their master. They were lost in the woods, and they had to stay there that night. They tried to sleep, but they heard some terrific noises, and only Harry Harmless was able to pray, and he prayed to God to protect him. The others were too corrupt to pray, and two lions appeared in the middle of the forest and devoured them. God, however, had heard Harry's prayer. The lions licked him. Stayed, by, stayed beside him and protected him until the next morning when a little white horse appeared and Harry rode back to Miston's teaching school to reform and live better life. That's the kind of story it is. After, when the story goes on after this rather light culinary episode, as I call it, and the book focuses on little King Pippin himself. At school, he meets Billy Worthy, the son of Sir William Worthy, a great merchant, uh, and he sends Peter abroad to his plantations in the West Indies. Unfortunately, as you might guess, the boat is shipwrecked on the way out. Peter's marooned on an island, but he survives, as I'm sure you must guess, because he has read Robinson Crusoe. Well, Peter Pippin, then, was the product of his education, as were most heroes and heroines of early children's books. His was an education that stressed discipline and building good habits and the moral. Now, this moral was not doctrinaire. It's latitudinarian. It stresses good deeds, proper thoughts, and prayer. There's nothing of the doctrine in most early children's books. No trinity, no salvation by faith alone, unless they're written by Calvinists, and that's a special category. Now, in this education which laid the foundation of his success and, so saved, and saved him from savages when he was marooned, both inward and, I think, outward savages, Pippin followed John Locke's ideas. And some thoughts concerning education, 1693, and an essay concerning human un understanding, 1690. Locke provided the middle classes with what, in effect, became educational handbooks, believing that little and almost insensible impressions made upon tender infancies had important and lasting consequences. Locke wrote that nine men out of ten were made good or evil, useful or not, by their education. Now, not only did Locke's thought help create belief in the importance of education or sum up and make available in a readable form educational ideas, but in their emphasis upon the formative importance of early experience, his ideas greatly contributed to the success of the first English children's books, first children's books that were not religious. Now, if you wish to explore this matter more, I'm going to suggest, and this is something terrible, that you read my book and move on to another subject. Uh, I should add that there were a number of religious books in the beginning of the 18th century, and throughout the century, they remained in print and others were written. But the weight of publishing during the century was against them, and at the end of the century, they did not constitute so large a part of the market as they did at the beginning. 
nurtured on Locke's ideas at a time when commercial prosperity was making society more conspicuously mobile, the middle classes in the 18th century envisioned their children's futures in secular as well as moral terms. And publishers catered to this feeling and provided books which seemed to promote, like Peter Pippin, both worldly and moral improvement. Let me give you an example of the kind of change that occurred. Um, during the century, Abraham, Abraham Cheer's book was, was popular. It's called, the title is significant, A Looking Glass for Children Being a Narrative of God's Gracious Dealings with Some Small Children. How God Took Them to His Bosom is what it's about. Um, Cheer asked, What are the toys of wanton boys to an immortal spirit? If naughty boys allure with toys, he wrote, to sin or lies to tell, then tell them plain you tempt in vain. Such ways go down to hell. In the poem written to a young virgin, be a different poem today, I think, after looking in a glass and thinking how sweetly God did form me, the narrator moaned, "'Tis pity such a pretty maid as I should go to hell." <laughs> well, cheers, book celebrated the holy deaths of young Christians. And to escape hell, cheer implied the young virgin had not merely to reject vanity, but life itself. Now, by the end of the century, the 18th century, although the emblem of the mirror is the same, the ends and language of most children's books had changed. And instead of reminding children of their mortality, mirrors taught morality. Now, among the most popular books at the end of the century, and I'm going to anglicize his name, was Arnold Berquin's A Looking Glass for the Mind, a collection of instructive stories. It's, it's a French book, but it appears in numerous edition after numerous edition. And instead of directing the young virgin to heaven, the looking glass directs her to an earthly kind of paradise. As a useful and instructive pocket looking glass, the preface of an edition of 1794 stated, we recommend it to the inspection of every youth, whether miss or master. It is a mirror that will not flatter them nor lead them into error. It displays the follies and improper pursuits of the youthful breast points out the dangerous paths they sometimes tread and clears the way to the temple of honor and fame. And that temple's in this world. And part of that results from John Locke. Well now, at the same time that Locke's view of the child as infinitely malleable was undermining the narrow religiosity of Calvinists, his thought nevertheless made education serious. And though he stressed uniting amusement with instruction, the instruction became very important. And this had the effect of undermining the popularity of chapbooks in the 18th century. If all experience made impressions upon children, then what a child read was important. And things that had once been passed off simply as body or high-spirited were no longer fit for children's perusals. And I want to give you an example of the kind of change uh, that occurs in the century. Perhaps the most famous of the 18th century children's characters, 17th century children's characters, true, is Tom Thumb. And I'm going to sketch his biography and sort of show you the changes that occur. Uh, the first extant biography we have is 1621. Um, it's a chapbook entitled, the History of Tom Thumb, the Little, for his small statute surnamed King Arthur's Dwarf, 
whose life and adventures contain many strange and wonderful incidents. Accidents. Now, if you've forgotten his life, let me run through it quickly. Uh, he was the son of a plain plowman, O Thomas of the Mountain. O Thomas and his wife were sadly childless, so the wife went to see Merlin the Magician in the middle of an oak tree in the forest. Three months later, she had a baby, uh, little Tom Thun. Uh, the queen of the fairies was the old wench's midwife, and all the dryads were present at his birth. Tom, in his younger days, was a scamp forever playing tricks and having larks. Uh, several things happened in his childhood that were, were humorous or enjoyable. Perhaps the most exciting thing was being but cooked into his mother's hog pudding. Um, she had dropped him in as a piece of fat and could not find him, and she was rather upset, but decided finally that he was too much trouble and was happy he was gone. She didn't know where he was. Uh, when she put the hog pudding, though, into the oven to cook, Tom started making a great hullabaloo. She thought the hog pudding, of course, was bewitched, and when a tinker came to the door begging, she gave him the hog pudding. He put it on his back, carried it off. Tom started making a great, <laughs> a great noise in the pudding, Quote, this so affrighted the poor tinker that in going over a stile, he farted for very fear. Mary Gip, good man tinker, quoth Tom Thumb, are ye farting ripe with a onion? The tinker thought the devil was in the puddings, so he threw them away, they broke, and Tom got home again. Uh, another occasion, the one you're probably most familiar with, is when Tom was eaten by the, by the red cow. In the versions we have today, he just gets as far as the cow's cud. Uh, in the 17th century, he goes all the way through, and his he's turned out in a cow turd after his mother gives him a laxative. Um, gives a cow a laxative, not Tom. Uh, other things happen to him, and this is probably, I guess, the most crucial event. Uh, a raven picks him up, flies off, drops him down a chimney. He falls into a giant's porridge. The giant eats Tom Thumb. Tom makes such a noise in the giant's tummy that the giant gets sick to his stomach, goes to the top of his castle, throws up. Tom is thrown three miles out into the sea. As soon as he hits the sea, a fish eats him. The fish is caught, taken to King Arthur's court, cooked, opened up, and out hops Tom thumb in King Arthur's court, where he becomes, as you might guess, a great favorite with the ladies. <laughs> many times they gave him leave to sleep upon their knees, and now and then in their pockets with many such like private places, and withal to sit upon their pin pillows and play with their pins and run it tilt against their bosoms with a bulrush. Well, whatever this story is, and it's a wonderful story, I think, it's not moral, and it's certainly not... <laughs> It's certainly not educational in the 17th century. Well, by the 18th century, things have changed. Uh, and this is from Tom uh, Thumb's exhibition, a late 18th century children's book. And he doesn't exhibit in this exhibition the bulrush that he used so delectably in King Arthur's court. Um, he exhibits moral toys. The exhibition is held, for example, in a large commodious room at Mr. Lovegood's number three in Wiseman's Buildings at the upper end of Education Road for the instruction and amusement, key words, of little masters and misses, Tom said, who are little and good like myself. And all of these things are moral exhibitions, uh, moral things. Now, as one more biography of Tom Thumb I want to talk about. Uh, this is Tom Thumb's folio, and it too is moral, a late 18th century book. Uh, the father of Tom Thumb in Tom Thumb's folio was, quote, greatly disconcerted at having such a tiny toy of a child. 
until a very learned man looked at him through a great pair of spectacles and said he would be a very little man and a very great man. Is it a great head, a strong arm, a big body, or a large leg that constituted a great man? The gentleman asked. No, he answered. It is wisdom and virtue, and that only which can make us great and happy. A great brute, or a great bear, or a great blockhead may be made by other means, but a great man cannot be formed without wisdom and virtue. Well, in this biography, Tom is no longer playful. He's known for his wisdom and virtue. There are some echoes, however, of the old chapbook, and I'll sketch that quickly, because these echoes, great God. I normally go to bed when I hear thunder. I have something up from my childhood, but I'll try to maintain my decorum here. Um, just pray it doesn't go too loud. Uh, Tom does several moral things, but the great event in his life is reforming the giant Grumbo. Uh, and Grumbo rules the land of the cuckoos. Tom gets on the back of a cuckoo. Now, notice how this is an echo of the earlier chapbook, but still mixes in the moral earlier book. Um, the cuckoo gets very tired by the time he gets to the land of Grumbo. Tom falls off the back of the cuckoo, falls into Grumbo's porridge, but gets out of the porridge and dips into Grumbo's back pocket to hide from the giant. Uh, he hides behind a snuff box. And after a few days of living in the pocket, Tom becomes quite bold. And whenever he discovers the giant, quote, about a bad action, he would stick his head out of the pocket, jab him with his sword and cry, Sarah, what are you at there? Sarah. After which he'd nip back into the pocket and hide behind the snuff box. Now, living in the pocket is, of course, inconvenient, but Grumbo <laughs> seems to have suffered more than Tom. The giant, Tom's biographer explained, not only missed his bread, but found something instead thereof which he did not like. For Tom, who had conveyed all the food among the linings of the folds where he had room to range, made use of the pocket for another purpose, which was not altogether fair, but he could not help it. <laughs> now, what happens in this story is that Tom reforms Grumbo. Every time he tries to go to sleep, Tom picks him with his little sword. And finally, Grumbo falls down. He's too tired to do anything. Tom comes out onto his chest and says, Are you inclined, old Grumbo, to live or to die? If you would live, you must take my advice and behave with humanity and kindness to all your subjects and to me. But if you would rather die than be good, do so, for nobody will, will be sorry for you. Grumbo decides to reform. Uh, Tom becomes his minister of justice. Tom marries Grumbo's daughter, who's a giantess. She carries him around in, around in her bosom. Uh, and he has two bouncing boys, each of whom is 900 times <laughs> bigger than his father. Now, <laughs> well, these are typical then 18th century children's books. Uh, Tom Thumb has been changed. Uh, and other books carry this further than that. Um, a, book, a book perhaps you should look at is the Bible. <laughs> um, uh, a book you perhaps should look at is the history of Tommy Titmouse. And this is a book that goes a step further than Tom Thumb as far as morality is concerned. 
It's a story, the title page says, of a little boy who became a great man by minding his learning, doing as he was bid, and being very good-natured and obliging to everyone. Little Tommy Titmouse is so little that he might even be known as handicapped today. This doesn't fret him, however. As little as I am, I need not care. A little boy may make a great man at last. On one occasion, for example, his schoolmates tie him on the back of the butcher's dog. The butcher's dog runs off, carries him off into the woods, and old Tom, little Tommy is physically lost. He is never mentally lost. In the woods, he meets the old man of the woods, allegorically, I think, a figure of wisdom, who tells him to mind your learning. He minds his learning, and he gets back home. Even when he goes to the fair, he enjoys seeing the show of Whitting, Dick Whittington and his cat. For if so poor a boy as he came to be Lord Mayor and ride in the gilt coach, by industry, says he, who knows what good luck Tommy Titmouse may have. Well, Tommy studies all the time, and the studies make him a success. He moves to London, becomes a fine man worth an immense amount of money, and then goes back to visit his little village in Connecticut where he was born. He wasn't born there, of course. Uh, when he came in his own coach into the town where he had formerly lived, the neighbors cried, is it possible? Can this fine gentleman be the same person that when a boy we used to call little Tommy Titmouse? And the old folks showed him to their children crying, look there and see how learning and good behavior can make a little boy a great man. Well then, education made the man in 18th century children's books. When the traditional argument of being satisfied with one's lot in life because it was ordained by God appeared in a popular children's book, it appeared, it seemed ridiculous. Uh, and I want to give you an example of that. This is a popular children's book that goes back and says that you should be happy with what you've got because it was ordained by God. Traditional justification in static society for keeping you in your place. Uh, this is from Samuel Jackson Pratt's book, The Paternal Present. It's about a beggar at the gates of Baghdad named Nahamir. Now, he's old, he's <laughs> hunchbacked, he's lame, he's crippled, and he's half-starved. Uh, Nahamir had once been a handsome man. He'd had a wife and six children. But suddenly, all the members of his family died, and a hideous bunch of superfluous flesh appeared on his shoulders. Then in an accident, he lost an eye. Following this seeming misfortune, he tumbled down a stairwell while going to the aid of a small boy who was being beaten by louts. Later, feeling compassion for an old man sitting by the side of the road, man was slumped over, he leans over to offer assistance. The man pulls out a sword and slices off Nahamir's right arm. Finally, Nahamir's business fails. His friends forsake him. And I think somewhat understandably, he feels as if he's a rather unfortunate man. Uh, and one day as he's sitting before the gates of Baghdad, lamenting his fate, an angel appears from the Lord and rebukes him. Uh, when Nahmir asks for an explanation, the angel observed that you survived when your family died. And in truth, the angel says, the deaths of your wife and children were examples of, quote, the benevolence of heaven. If they had lived, your children would have been disobedient and your wife would have betrayed you. Moreover, the loss of his good looks had preserved Nahamir's life. Uh, if he had remained handsome, the angel said, he would have been involved in a scandalous intrigue and would have been impaled upon its discovery. Even the loss of his eye was fortunate. 
because unknown to Nahmeel, the caliph wanted to make him a harem guard. Certain ceremonies would have been necessary. <laughs> the angel said, but the caliph rejected the idea after Nahmeel lost his eye. In falling down the staircase, the angel recounted Nahmeel was fortunate just to break one leg. The loss of his right arm was a blessing because he, he reminds Nachmir that at a feast sometimes later he had been insulted and if he had not lost his right arm he would have drawn his saber and committed a mortal sin. Even the bankruptcy was a blessing for Nachmir would have used his wealth and in a detestable manner and become an horror to thyself and a disgrace to human nature. Suffer patiently, the angel told Nachmir, after death, thou shalt commence a new career where every happiness shall be complete and uninterrupted. Well, the angel indeed convinced Nahmir that he was fortunate. And satisfied with his lot in life, Nahmir returned to begging, quote, thanking heaven with all his heart that he was old and deformed, blind and crippled, and limping without fortune, without wife, and without children. Well, <laughs> Nahamir's satisfaction, I suppose, and subsequent thoughts about the eternal rather than earthly things must have earned him a place in paradise. But since society had become progressively fluid during the century, in most literature for children, even in that for children from the lower classes, heaven was not the only reward for contentment in one station. In Sunday school dialogues, the teacher hinted that Mary's satisfaction would enable her to better, to better her situation. Good people, the teacher said, would always find friends to help them in time of need. And since poverty was, if not at least a condition of need, Mary could reasonably expect her virtue to receive secular rewards. Nahamia aside, the belief that the individual could determine his or her happiness and level in society had become such a part of the age that making the case for contentment in poverty became difficult. Even conservative writers who believed that social mobility rendered the nation unstable were obliged to hint, as the teacher did to Mary, that not only would contentment contribute to mental peace, but it would also lead to a better standard of living. In this, and not the other world, in the Sunday School Catechist, Mrs. Trimmer blended God's will with self-interest in urging poor children to be satisfied. It's part of your duty to your neighbors to order yourselves lowly and reverently to all your betters. That is to say, to behave in a respectful manner to your parents, governors, teachers, spiritual pastors, and masters. All these should be considered as your betters or superiors because God has placed them in a higher station of life than yourselves and put it in their power to do you many kindnesses which will render your low condition more comfortable. It was always rendered more comfortable. Well, although the rewards proffered in many children's books were money and position, much like the rewards, incidentally, in Richardson's Pamela, aristocratic luxury and the idleness that accompanied it were frequently attacked in children's books. In the ideal Lockean world, and forget for a moment that Locke wrote for a gentleman's son, expand the definition of gentleman here, in the ideal Lockean world, no person would inherit power or prestige, but would be educated to assume it. Attaining position depended upon education and work, not privilege. Without a rigorous education, this sounds awfully present day, doesn't it? That's what it is. Uh, 
Without a rigorous education, a child could neither achieve success nor control his life. Not educated for or even to maintain its position, the aristocracy was usually depicted, the king aside, as pampered and morally weak and ultimately doomed. Although education was seen as leading to the extinction of the idle aristocracy, however, luxurious luxuries and aristocratic behavior were also seen as dangerously seductive in early children's books. Instead of providing children with an education which schooled them for this life and thereby for eternity, parents, many critics came to believe, were misled by the promises inherent in Locke's educational views. Dazzled by the possibilities for advancement in society and by the ornamental surface of aristocratic life, they forgot the criticism of the aristocracy inherent in Locke and aping their betters provided children with educations which showed which taught the showy rather than the useful. And stories of spoiled children who were ruined by indulgence or by their parents aping the aristocracy abound in 18th century children's books. Typical is this one called The Indolent Beauty from the Blossoms or Morality which is taken from Berquin but it's done by Richard Johnson here. This is a story of Bella, a spoiled girl. Bella's father was rich and her mother so indulgent that she could never think of applying even the most tender correction. As a result, Bella, of course, became willful and, when she, and she refused to study. She explained to her mother, what need have I of learning when my parents are so rich and you yourself acknowledge I am so pretty? At this, which is a Seems reasonable to me. Uh, at this time, Ernestus, however, a, a young gentleman of fortune and character, visited Bella's home and considered courting Bella until he discovered that she was little more than an ignorant beauty. Well, Ernestus turned away, and then disaster struck. Bella's father went bankrupt and died shortly afterwards. Forced to live modestly, Bella and her mother moved to a cottage in the west of England. As consolation for her losses, Bella reminded herself that she was still beautiful. Fortunately, however, as things turned out, this consolation proved fleeting as she caught smallpox and lost her looks. Uh, smallpox fills these books, of course, but homely girls never get smallpox. Beautiful girls always do. I think that the New England Journal of Medicine should look into this. Well... In a passage, I think, recalling the imagery of Robinson Crusoe, the author addressed youthful readers. Be careful, he warned, how you place too great a confidence in the possession of beauty and wealth, since they are as fleeting as the wind and as unsteady as the vessel on the troubled billows of the ocean. Fortify your minds with religion and virtue and a proper knowledge of the useful sciences. The storms and hurricanes of fortune may attack you, but you will always withstand their rage and deride their fury. Well, Bella, like Robinson Crusoe, was instructed by misfortune. Deprived of wealth and beauty, she studied diligently, with the result that the improvement she made in her mind procured her more friends than she was ever able to acquire by the charms of her person. Two years passed, and then Ernestus, who happened to be traveling through the countryside on business, <laughs> called on Bella's mother. Out of politeness, he talked to Bella, whom, in fact, he did not recognize because she was now so homely. Um, he was astonished by the change, not simply in looks. Before she was a beauty without sense, now she had lost the charm of her face, 
but it found those of the mind. Knowing that these were infinitely the most to be valued, Anestus asked for her hand, and they were married. <laughs> well, since hard work and habits of industry, that is to say, early experience shaped the adult, any kind of talent or position that enabled one to take shortcuts and thereby have free time was dangerous in early children's books. Thus, there are numerous books, and I think akin to Tommy Titmouse, in which children who have handicaps are fortunate in comparison to their normal schoolmates. Because they have to work harder or are unable to waste their time playing, handicapped children succeed, whereas talented children often end on the gallows. Uh, it's quite true that scores of them are, are hanged. The, the ancestry, of course, of this kind of tale is complex, and it's, it's related, of course, to the power of positive thinking, and it's tied up to religious stories. Uh, there are numerous religious stories, which you must be familiar with, in which the handicapped child uh, gets to heaven because he or she cannot play. Uh, the Lord loved them so much that he crippled them and made it easy for them to make their ways to the arms of Jesus. Uh, there are hundreds of these. Uh, but these are not the mainstream of the publication of children's books. Let me give you one example of, of a story, not so much of a handicap, as of fortunate poverty. Um, now this is the, it's called the foundling. The foundling is the infinitely educatable child with no background, no position in society, the person who must make his or her way. This is a rewriting, I think, of Tom Jones. Uh, to suit the educational mood of the end of the 18th century. And it exposes the dangers of talents, money, and birth. Lucius's parents deserted him in his infancy, and they leave him on a blanket suspended to the knocker of the door of the good Sir John Honeycomb. Now, Sir John and Lady Honeycomb have a child, two months old, a son. Uh, as Allworthy does, Mr. Allworthy does with Tom Jones, they raise the boys together, and they treat them as brothers. When they reach five, however, the boys are informed of the differences in their births. They, nevertheless, they continue to study under the same masters, and no distinction is made between them except, quote, Lucius was not permitted to accompany them in their visits. This mark of superiority was a flattering object to their son, which filled his mind with ideas of the greatness of his birth, and by degrees made him very indifferent about his studies. As the outsider, the foundling, Lucius wisely perceived that the only chance he had of getting into the world and supporting himself with any degree of credit was to attend to his studies with industry. Thus, while the parade of birth and riches interrupted young Sir John in the progress of his learning, the want of these laid the foundation of the future great greatness of the prudent Lucius. Well, the boys go off to Oxford. Uh, Sir John, young Sir John, falls in with a fast crowd. Lucius has a smaller allowance. He has to study. Uh, Young Sir John gets jealous of Sir Lucius, who's made his reputation as a legal scholar at Oxford, uh, and as Bliffle does to poor Tom Jones, he slanders Lucius so that the honeycombs have nothing to do with him, and they force him out into the world completely on his own. Uh, unlike Tom Jones, he doesn't wander aimlessly pursuing present-day delights. However, he goes off <laughs> to London and articles himself to an attorney. And there, his work, not his birth or his fortune, so impressed his employer that he eventually marries his employer's daughter and inherits the money. In contrast, 
So John wastes his money in riot, and he becomes a gambler. In trying to recoup his losses, he loses everything. And after her husband's death, Lady poor Lady Honeycomb tries to reform him, but, quote, eventually gave herself up to despair and died in a consumption, after which Sir John dices away the rest of his estates. Now, without wealth or a family, Sir John is in the position of Lucius at the beginning of the book. From the Lockean perspective, his losses are actually gains. Now he has no inheritance to tempt him from education, an education which will determine his position in life. And as Lucius himself had come from nowhere and had been found, so now Lucius finds Sir John wrapped in rags in an obscure public house. Lucius takes him into his house. <laughs> he educates him. He makes him study. And he learns, Sir John learns, to scorn the parade of birth and riches. In effect, he becomes a middle-class outsider formed by his education, so much so that he deserves to have his virtue rewarded. And when an uncle in the West Indies dies, an uncle who's been forgotten for the course of the book, he leaves all his money to Sir John. Well then, if you work for it, were educated, less led to more. But one had to be disciplined and one had to work. And the child who was not disciplined or who avoided work suffered. And I'm going to end up with one last story. School stories. This is from a school story. It's a genre that became popular, obviously, at a time when education <laughs> was becoming popular. Uh, this is the a story called The Adventures of Timothy Thoughtless. And it describes the sufferings of a small boy who flees away from boarding school. Timothy is the uh, son of a confectioner in London who, quote, by his own industry and attention to business, became wealthy. And although Mr. Thoughtless does not ape the aristocracy, his son is spoiled both literally and metaphorically by indulging in the sweets of his father's trade. Timothy becomes sickly, so he's sent to Mr. To Greengrove House, a boarding school. There, he doesn't eat sweets, and he becomes healthy again and forward in his learning. He spent two years there. He was very happy. Unfortunately, uh, like the snake in Eden, Will Grumble appears. And Will disrupts the school. His joy was to tell one that Master Such a One had said different falsities of him. And then he would go to the other with similar lies till he had produced a quarrel or a boxing match. When the rest of the boys are at play, he breaks into the schoolroom, he blots their copybooks, he destroys their gardens, he pulls up flowers and breaks fences. Gardens in 18th century children's books are wonderful. There are more quarrels over apples than anything else in 18th century children's books. Uh, he criticizes the school and the schoolmaster, so the boys begin to think themselves badly used. Uh, one day, Grumble steals a book from Master White's playbox. Uh, when asked about it, he lies, like every, he lies and says he doesn't know anything about it. About a week later, quote, as Timothy was watching a snail crawling up the wall of a barn, which was old and full of chinks, he discovers this book. He takes the book out and starts to read it, but the headmaster who's passing him by sees him reading it and thinks that he has indeed stolen it from, Mr. from Master White. So great was his anger at finding a thief in one of his scholars. The headmaster does not listen to Timothy's explanation and beats him severely with his riding whip and says that the next morning I will beat you in front of the whole school. Timothy decides then to write his daddy, 
But Grumble, who's lurking in the bushes viewing this, says nothing while it's going on, but comes up to Timothy and convinces him to run away. And the next morning, early, he and Grumble run away. Soon, however, the way becomes tough. They become lost. In leaving school, and thereby the education which determines both moral and economic success, Timothy is condemning himself to misery. And the landscape through which he and Grumble travel changes, becoming a kind of hell. Uh, It becomes stormy. The two boys become exhausted and they fall asleep. The storm wakes them up. The lightning flashed as if all the heavens were on fire, and the thunder shook the ground where they stood with its dreadful explosions. The wind bent the branches of the trees and the hedges, mingling its loud howlings with the thunder, and the rain rushed down the foot, and the limb falls off, dashing out his brains on the spot. Now, in undermining his, and edu- his education and other boys' educations, Grumble had, of course, destroyed all possibilities for positive development and his early death is both fortunate and inevitable, you see. Thus ended the life of that wicked boy who had providence suffered him to live, would in all probability have grown up in wickedness till some of his actions would have brought him to the gallows. Well, since early impressions, and consequently actions, had lasting consequences, finding one's way back to school or the right educational path was not easy. Education teaches control and discipline. And his uneducated grumble had, in a sense, been at the mercy of his evil impulses. So Timothy, who had rashly rejected education, was now at the mercy of evil elements within society. He's bitten by dogs, he's chased, he finally falls asleep, and he's suddenly awakened by someone pinching his cheek. He finds a beggar woman standing above him. Her face was haggard and withered and frightfully marked with smallpox. She wore rags, and beside her was a filthy child named Teddy. Pray don't kill me, Timothy cries in horror. What money have you got, you little thief? The woman answered and told the boy Teddy to search him. They take Timothy's money and his clothes, and they leave him. Give over your piping and sniveling, the woman cried, cursing, or I'll strip your carcass and murder you. Well, in running away from school, Timothy had unconsciously turned away from education, which children's books taught was primarily responsible for the differences between men. Without an education, he was doomed to be a teddy. And after the beggar woman left, he wandered aimlessly. And he goes through a whole series of terrible experiences until finally he goes to work for Sam's sturdy uh, chimney sweep. And in one house where he's working, he finds a piece of paper, and he remembers he can write. And he uses his education to write his mother and father, and they come and get him. Had you waited, his father scolded him, your innocence would have shortly appeared and your character would have been redeemed. Well, Timothy's undisciplined wanderings did not bring knowledge or enable him to cope better with life. He learned only that he wanted to return to school. In school stories, stemming from Locke, the child who became good quickly learned to say no. Outside school, life was anarchic, and instead of controlling circumstance by saying no, the child was controlled more by circumstances, and instead of growing by denying experience, was ruined by experiencing. Toward the end, however, of the 18th century, other kinds of books arose. And I don't want to say much about them, but I want to say that Rousseau, for example, will argue in contrast to Locke, that experience will teach much better than teachers. All things 
or as good as their creator made them, but everything degenerates in the hands of man. By human art is our native soil compelled to nourish exotic plants and one tree to bear the fruits of another. Improving man makes a general confusion of elements, climates, and seasons. He mutilates his dogs, his horses, and his slaves. He defaces, he confounds everything, as if he delighted in nothing but monsters and deformity. In Amelius, Rousseau is going to teach that nature, uncontrolled by man, will be a better teacher than man. Experiences like those experienced by Timothy Thoughtless will make him grow. He will develop. Mary Wollstonecraft will write, let me see, I'm going to skip here. The regulation of the passions is not always wisdom. On the contrary, it should seem that one reason why men have superior judgment and more fortitude than women is undoubtedly this, that they give a freer scope to the grand passions and by more frequently going astray, enlarge their minds. Now, in this attitude is the lineage of different kinds of heroes for children's books. Not Lockean heroes. The boy, for example, who transgresses against convention and appeared bad but was actually good. The vagabond who makes no educational progress and seems to be drifting aimlessly but who is rapidly developing his capacities to deal with life. Aladdin. Now these characters offer enormous new possibilities. For those people who believe that society is innately corrupt and that education perpetuates social evil, this character can become the voice of truth and nature, which are often the same. Thus, uneducated children, in contrast to Locke's children, are transformed into infant philosophers, the Kims and the Hucks of children's books in the 19th century. But these are characters that I don't wish to talk about, and I'm going to stop now and just leave you with Locke. And I will, I will wear this T-shirt. I will wear this T-shirt, perhaps in the New Haven 20K Ray on Labor Day. <laughs> please, please. You may even have extra large if you like. Oh, that's what I really want. <laughs> and it, if uh, Teresa, will you take care of that? Thank you very much. I hope you'll all join us for a glass of wine in room 523.